Today's guest is Nick Schumacher. He is the founder of Elasticity LLC, which is an IT consulting firm uh, located in the Washington, D.C. area. Nick and I have gotten to know each other over the past few years uh, through a bunch of uh, networking organizations and events in the D.C. area. So I'm very pleased to finally have you on, Nick. Th thanks for joining me. All right. Thanks for having me, Jeremy. I'm uh, excited. So for those who haven't met you and had a chance to uh, inter interact with you, talk about your background. Where are you from, who you are, and what you do? Sure, yeah. So let's see. Uh, I'm going to show my age here, but uh, I'm going to go back uh, to high school. I uh, did my high school in India and did a couple of years of college in India. Ah. And uh, in India, the education system, uh, kids start really young. Uh, we start our first grade. We actually finish our first grade when we are five. Oh, wow. So that that's, uh, kind of puts us a little ahead uh, in terms of finishing the years. Uh, but I was only 18 uh, when I already had those couple of years of college under my belt in India. And that's when I moved to U.S. Um, when I was about 18 years old. Uh, and I landed up in Texas, in Arlington, uh, and uh, I chose UT Dallas to go do my computer science degree. Uh, but I'll uh, go back a little bit more. So while I was in India, and I'm talking about early 90s, mid 90s, and uh, <clears throat> uh, computer education was picking up in India, and, and I figured... Um, let's dive into this. This is something new, something cool. It seems like uh, the whole world was going crazy about adopting computers. So uh, I joined um, a private school in India to learn computers. And I was not learning this through my college. Uh, in college, I was more focused in the commerce and the accounting and the finance side. Uh, but on the outside, and this is sort of after school program. So in the evening for about three hours every day, I am sitting in this so-called institute uh, that runs like a college in a way. So you can think of a private college, essentially, and they are covering the basics of the computer and teaching computer programming and so on mm -hmm. and so forth. So uh, I learned the basics. I learned something called Foxborough, if you ever yep. heard of it. I use Foxborough, yes. Uh, and this is uh, mid nineties. Uh, and then I learned C programming and, uh, they were also going to cover Oracle database, but I moved here. So I did not finish that. Uh, but I learned enough C programming to understand how programming works. And then coming to us, uh, I was of the age of going directly into a college for undergrad. So I just started doing my research and I went to a couple of years of uh, community college and then did another couple of years, my last two years at uh, UT Dallas. Hmm. Um, and, and the community college was also in Texas or? Yeah, yeah, yeah. They were all part of the Dallas County system. And uh, this was in Richardson, Texas. And then obviously the credits transferred into UT Dallas. Yeah. And having learned computers back in India, I knew I wanted to do something related to computer. So when I went to UT Dallas, I asked them, what are my options? They gave me one option, computer science. 
and they didn't have a computer engineering degree. They said, uh, if you wanted to do engineering, uh, you got to do electrical engineering. And I'm like, I have no interest in semiconductors or anything <laughs> along those lines. So I chose computer science and uh, I got some uh, recommendations to do my prereqs at the uh, community college because it would be significantly cheaper. And um, I confirmed with UT Dallas as well as the community college that all the courses that I take, they need to count, the credits need to count towards my degree. And, and that's pretty much what I focused on. So in two years, I was done there. And then the last two years, I went to UT Dallas. And so the timing was such that I went to UT Dallas in fall of 1999. And there was a mad frenzy about fixing Y2K problem. Yes, it was. So most of the engineers were super busy uh, working on that stuff. And Dallas was sort of becoming a booming telecom industry. And it's still, they call it a telecom corridor. Uh, there is a highway called 75, and it's sort of peppered with telecom companies. So in 1999, as soon as I started UT Dallas, I went to their uh, career center and learn whether uh, I could get in any kind of an internship or a co-op. And they're like, yes, uh, <laughs> put your name in here. We'll help you build your resume. And chances are very high. Uh, you'll find something. And are you going to tell me they had interns fixing Y2K bugs? No, <laughs> thankfully, no. <laughs> thankfully, no. So it was very interesting. Um, Web development was also growing in late 90s. Uh, I used to get those silly CDs from AOL and MSN. Uh, but I self-taught how to write HTML. And eventually down the road, I also learned JavaScript. But in, in the 90s, HTML was pretty much everything. So I, I self-taught myself. And just like any other computer science or engineering geeky kid, I was tinkering with old laptops and I would take Windows laptops and wipe off the OS and install Linux on it yeah. and play with the command line interface and, and that kind of stuff. So I had a small server running in my apartment and, uh, Thankfully, back then uh, in the apartment, all the utilities were paid. <laughs> so, uh, and the cable modem just started coming out. So, I created a mini network and installed Apache web server on that and nice. just ran websites out of my apartment. <laughs> and we didn't have to worry too much about the bandwidth because even though I was able, I was one of the early adopters of cable modem, meaning high bandwidth. But 95, 98% of the U.S. population was still using dial-up modems. So had no issues with the bandwidth. Nobody cared as in what are you streaming, right? Because on the other side, on the receiving end, you, you could only receive so much. Right, 56K. There you go, right? Uh, and, <laughs> and it said 56K. It would never download 56K. It would download right. significantly <laughs> less true. than that. Um. Uh, 
so all those experiences kind of helped me. And when I got to UT Dallas, um, once I got my profile built up in the career center, like literally next week, I got a call from Ericsson. And Ericsson's like, we need an internal web developer. Um, we like your profile. We see your resume. Come in and interview. I go in for an interview and they ask me zero questions. <laughs> they are like, we think we know what you know and we want you to start next week. Wow. I'm like, okay. <laughs> so I started part-time at Ericsson and then I was going to school full-time. So my entire two and a half years while I was at UT Dallas, I did internship at, uh, or they used to call co-op, uh, at Ericsson. From Ericsson, I went to Alcatel. And then from Alcatel, I went to Nortel. Hmm. Uh, and in my last semester, uh, Nortel gave me two offers, one as a co-op, and then they are like, all right, here's your full-time offer. And once you graduate, you will do the same thing, but we'll just flip you inside our HR system. And uh, so that's how I got to Nortel. And I graduated in spring of 2001, May of 2001. So, so after the dot bomb, uh, the, the, the dot com bust. <laughs> yes, exactly. So the dot com bubble bursted, and um, my nor my full time offer from Nortel was rescinded. Mm. And uh, it, it was interesting. Uh, the the unit that I was supporting within Nortel, it was close to two hundred people. Uh, but halfway through the semester. Um, pretty much 60-70% of the staff was gone wow. uh, and they're like you can finish your co-op uh, but sorry we don't have a full-time job for you um, so yeah it, during those uh, two and a half years I did a lot of web development for these three companies and then I was jobless <laughs> <laughs> uh, so uh, and, and this is Dallas Texas so IT jobs like just vanished and because it was telecom sector, everything was connected with networking. So, and networking was everything tied with the, the dot-com growth. Mm -hmm. So not many switches were being sold by Ericsson's or the Alcatel's or the Nortel's or the Cisco's. Uh, so it took me a while to find something different, um, almost, almost a couple of years, a year and a half. I did some odd jobs in between. Uh, I became uh, a camera salesperson. And I'm like, I can't sit at home and I need to find something. Uh, and nobody was interested in getting um, websites built anymore. Everybody realized that, oh, this whole dot-com thing is nonsense. How many URLs can one individual remember? It was just like 1-800 number right. alternative. Like how many number uh, URLs are you going to remember? So that kind of dried up in 2001, 2002 timeframe. So while I was doing odd jobs, I was like, maybe I should go and do grad school. What else is there to do? So I started taking graduate level classes without formally joining the program uh, at UT Dallas. And I'm like, okay, let's keep doing this. And I picked up on some advanced level courses, advanced level programming classes, architecture classes, systems analysis, and design courses. And then when I, towards end of 2002, I just got tired of 
studying. Like I've had enough of this. I'll see, be a camera salesperson. I'll figure something out. Um, if if I become the best camera salesperson on the planet, so be it. <laughs> if if it's meant to be. So while I was doing that, a buddy of mine had uh, a small business up here in DC area. And him and I, we were always in, in contact with each other. And out of the blue, he just sends me an email asking me if I was still open for a job. And um, I agreed. He filled me in that this is in Washington, D.C. And I was open for moving out of Texas. So the story was that on Friday, we had all these conversations. On Monday, he set me up an interview with a large prime contractor in D.C., and uh, the contract was for Department of Agriculture. So I knew nothing about federal contracting. All I knew was coding. Um, so Monday, I'm having an interview with the large prime contractor uh, individual. And uh, for 30 minutes, we chat. He fills me in on what needs to be done for Department of Agriculture. And I told him that, yeah, it sounds fairly simple. Uh, it's just the volume of work. There was no creativity in the work, which is just the volume of work. And um, again, it was revamping USDA's website. Mm. And it was for Office of Communications, and they were trying to standardize everything under the EGov initiative from President Bush back then. So I'm like, okay, if it's flat, simple HTML, I mean, I've done tons of websites if you want i can build you one right now and and they're like no it's all great um when can you start i'm like when do you want me to start <laughs> so the answer was uh tomorrow <laughs> um uh, did my buddy tell you that i'm in texas and the very next question was so you can't start tomorrow and i'm like oh i i, I can start tomorrow <laughs> <laughs> I was at that point, I'm like, you know, this is sort of a, a door opening up for me. I, like, sure, camera sales is not bad, but I always wanted to code. So I was like, yeah, I'll be there. No worries. And uh, everything. And thankfully, Dallas was an hour behind. So we wrap up the interview by 1030 Dallas time. I call my friend, tell him that, hey, this is what the conversation was. They want me there tomorrow, 7.30 in the morning. And uh, you tell me what you can pay me. I didn't talk anything about the the salary or the money aspect. And he's like, all right, just give me an hour and I'll figure everything out. And he calls me around 11.30 and tells me, check your email. You have a flight ticket in your email. And the flight leaves uh, Dallas Airport at around 1.30. So make sure you're on it. <laughs> like, wow, <well>, fantastic. <laughs> so so I, I, I grab some food, grab some clothes that I can find. And this was not the time of Uber or anything along those lines. So I had to pick up a yellow page and find the taxi phone number. Right. <clears throat> I book a taxi and the taxi shows up around 1230 <clears throat> at my place. And I have a 45 drive to the airport and I'm like, buddy, this is the day of my life. 
if I don't make that plane, I'll be doomed. What do you think? And he's like, oh, no problem. Get in. <laughs> <laughs> so he drives like a maniac. I get to the airport in 30 minutes, a 45 minute drive. Um, I somehow get on the on the plane. And before the plane is departing, I had a friend in Springfield, Virginia. That's all I knew that he is near DC. I had no clue about the geography, right. the two different states that are around DC and where this guy lived. I had no clue. And he's like, yeah, I'm in Springfield. I'm like, okay, uh, quickly tell me your address before this plane takes off and I'll see you in the evening. And he's like, what is going on? <laughs> we'll have this conversation when I see you. <laughs> wow. And, um, so Monday afternoon, uh, this is in December, this is, and very clearly remember, uh, Monday afternoon, I catch the flight, I end up at BWI, because that's the flight I got. Um, and then I taxi down to Springfield. Oh, wow. That's a long way. <laughs> yes, and I had no clue. <laughs> uh, and then when I got to my friend's place, I'm like, hey, look, I just need a couple of weeks to to crash someplace. Uh, I just got this job. <clears throat> and he had moved from Arlington, Texas, just three months ago. <laughs> so he arrived in September or so, 2003. I show up here in December, 2003. Um, and he's like, yeah, it's it's cool, you know, you can just stay here, even if it's longer. Um, I was looking for a roommate anyways. I'm like, okay, uh, this could work out perhaps. Uh, and, and this friend of mine, I've known him since 1997. So we knew each other quite well. <clears throat> and then uh, Tuesday morning, 7.30, I'm outside at USDA on uh, Independence. And I'm like, all right, here I am. I think... This is a good career start. <laughs> yeah. So and and by the way, I I I kind of resigned from the uh the elect electronics company <laughs> on <laughs> camera sales over the phone on on Monday evening when I when I reached BWI, I called my manager. I'm like, hey, sorry, I you know this is the deal, and I'm not going to be coming in starting tomorrow. I'm sorry, but this is something what I'm really looking forward to. And obviously he was mad and he's like, oh, it's very unprofessional. I'm like, oh, sorry. <laughs> right. At least you're not going back to camera sales. Uh, no, no. So, so yeah, that, that's what brought me to DC. So I've been here uh, since 2003. I, I landed here and for the first three weeks, I knew nothing. All, there's only one thing. Uh, Springfield, Blue Line Metro, get off at Smithsonian, yep. Metro stop. And um, just get into Witten Building uh, and just spend time. And this is when the contractors were always at the government site. Um, remote wasn't there. Mm -hmm. uh, so I did that for three weeks. I worked through, I pretty much did 60, 70 hour weeks for those three weeks. Uh, I worked through the Christmas Eve. Uh, I worked from my apartment on Christmas day. Obviously I wasn't going back to Texas. I was just here about 10 days ago. Uh, so I spent that Christmas day working. And then when I got back to work the next day, I, I connected to the, the repository and uploaded all my changes and then <clears throat> worked through the New Year's Eve. 
my buddies are calling me on the phone. It's like, hey, it's 31st night. I'm like, yeah, but I can't leave. I need to finish this stuff. <laughs> uh, so uh, so the manager from the, 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 the large prime, him and myself, just two of us were cranking out code literally 2 a.m. on January 1st. Wow. And, and I'm like, uh, Brad, you got to drop me off home uh, <laughs> because the trains are not working. And he's like, yeah, yeah, I got you. <laughs> so he drove me to Springfield and dropped me off at like three in the morning. Um, and then uh, that first weekend of January 2004, we published the new look and feel website for USDA.gov. So, so yeah, that, that was my uh, entry into GovCon. Yeah, that's a, and that's an interesting entry. That's not that's not your <laughs> typical entry into GovCon. No, you no. Know, a typical entry is somebody has to come in and maybe do help with uh, proposals or you know, right, get into that IT consulting gear. You, you got to work your way up, uh, sure. or, or if you're on the delivery side, right, you get you get added to a delivery team, but not like that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, it, it was a very unique experience. Uh, and whenever I share this story, a lot of people get a kick out of it. I mean, I get a kick out of it yeah, even till date. I haven't done anything crazy like that <laughs> <laughs> uh, since. Uh, so, so yeah. I and then I stayed here. Uh, you were very well aware that once a contract ends, there's always another one lined up, and that's pretty much what happened. One after another, I was moving from contract to contract. And then at one point, I got a gig uh, with Marriott um, to go up and work up in Bethesda. So I did that for a year. Uh, and um, I kid you not, I got tired of coding by then. And I mean, this is 2007. So in four years, I was like, okay, I've had enough of this. You know, I, I want to do something different. Uh, so my cousins from India... Uh, we were exchanging information, we we're talking on the phone, and they're like, hey, how about commodities trading? Uh, you could send some commodities from US to India. I was like, sure, let me explore and I'll figure something out, And which I did. So I left IT, I left GovCon and started my own commodities trading business and uh, all on my own. I did all the research. Uh, thankfully, internet had progressed uh, from 1998 to, uh, to uh, 2007. You, you could find information a lot more easier. And um, I figured out what were the ways of finding uh, customers overseas. I figured out how to find the vendors and the suppliers within US. Um, and then eventually I expanded my procurement into from Canada. Mm. Uh, also Puerto Rico uh, and some of the Caribbean uh, islands uh, as well. So I was buying scrap metal. So yeah. th the commodities were the metals. So think of iron, steel, uh, copper, aluminum that we throw away. Um, I mean, when I say we, it's U.S. or North America in general. Uh, all the cars that are being trashed after the end of life and so on and so forth. So all that metal eventually gets recycled. Uh, I want to say 60 to 70% of that volume stays within US and Canada. And then about 30 or maybe more percentage goes overseas because we just generate so much scrap metal. 
Hmm. Right. So uh, people always look at it and say, oh, it's a junkyard. And and when I would like correct them, I'm like, no, that's a money yard. <laughs> 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 you may think it's junk, but it's it's there's a ton of money in there. It's, it's a great business. So I got into the logistics side, uh, became a broker, and I would broker deals between the scrap businesses in U.S., Canada, and some of the Caribbean islands. And the, I had clients in South Korea, China, Vietnam, um, India, of course, uh, Bangladesh, Pakistan, um, had uh, a couple of customers in Kenya. And uh, I would just arrange shipments and, and do the transactions and I would have my cut in between. Sure. So, so I'll fast forward a little bit, 2007, all the way till 2015, I did that. Oh, wow. Yeah. And I had nothing to do with IT in there. And then, of course, life was happening at the same time. I'd gotten married. Uh, we had kids. And I was traveling a lot. Uh, all the procurement happens from within U.S. and Canada. And if... You never think about it, but once I mention, you will probably agree that if you ever see scrapyards, they are in faraway rural areas. There, you may see maybe one or two in urban places, but majority of the scrapyards in U.S. are in the hinterland. And when I say hinterland, I'm not saying like Midwest per se, but they are far away from the large urban centers. Sure. So. The, my challenge was always if I fly to, let's say, Georgia uh, or South Carolina, but the, uh, the time it would take me to get to the airport, catch the flight, get a rental car, and then get to the business itself, I could just drive from D.C. in about the same amount of time. Hmm. Uh, and that's what I did. So I, I drove pretty much entire length of I-95 wow. uh, all the way from Miami. Um, Maine, Montreal, uh, Toronto, like I drove almost every week or every other week. And then once we had children, I was like, mm, okay, you know, this is good, going good, but I want to stay home. Yeah. Uh, so I switched careers again. And I, I questioned myself, what would keep me local? IT, government contracting. <laughs> Uh, and because I was technical, it was sort of easy for me to segue back into government contracting. Um, I segued through my technical expertise. Um, some of the stuff that I had left back in 2006, 2007, and I did these things for Marriott way back in 06, 07, but it had caught up in, on the government side. All of a sudden, automation testing was a big deal. I'm like, yeah, this is cool. And it's only 2015 and you get to do automation testing. That's fine. So that's what I ended up doing. I got in as a QA and picked up on automation testing once again, um, supported uh, Veterans Administration, and then from there moved on to some supporting some other agencies and worked for other contractors. And in all this time, um, in, in 2015, I got back into GovCon. 2016, I was picked up by a, another large uh, government contractor from LinkedIn. And I'm like, we like what you have done. And, and that interview also was pretty much like 
the interview from Ericsson, like they didn't ask me any questions. <laughs> They're like, we like your resume. We, uh, all, all the things that are mentioned in the resume is pretty cool. Do you have any questions for us? I mean, that was the interview process and I was happy about it. Uh, I took that job. And then because this was a very, a large system integrator and most of these system integrators are matrixed organizations. So I ended up doing more than just delivery on, on the technical work. It was more about uh, architecting solutions, uh, responding to RFIs, uh, responding to RFPs, uh, getting in front of the client uh, and explaining them what potential solution could be and so on and so forth. Uh, and then uh, it was just going from one company to another company, just trying to figure out uh, where do I have better options in terms of technical work, in terms of BD work, uh, solutioning work, and so forth. So in 2018, I went ahead and registered Elasticity LLC, and I still had a full-time job. I just told myself that one of these days I'll do something with the company, but let's just register the company. And, and the name came about was in 2017, I had started studying for cloud. Mm. And while I was preparing for AWS certifications, the, the underlying mantra of the solutions architect exam was cloud is very elastic. Yep. <laughs> and I'm like, I like that name. I, I can't use the name elastic. So I need to figure something out. And I didn't want to call it elastic consulting or anything along those lines. I'm like, hmm, let's just, I, I researched online and found out that uh, there is no company called Elasticity LLC within Virginia. So I registered Elasticity LLC in the, in the state of Virginia. And I just kept it. I didn't do anything with it um, because I was still having jobs. And I kept on learning and um, started getting involved with the industry organizations. Um, my first GovCon organization was AFSIA. Uh, I went to AFSIA's events and then I ran into ACT-IAC and then <clears throat> started getting involved um, a lot with ACT-IAC. And at one point um, in their emerging technologies COI, um, they started uh, a working group for DevOps. Yep. So that's how I got involved. Um, uh, I had uh, some contribution in the white paper, the very first primer that went out from the DevOps working group. Um, a lot of the, the, the technical pieces were written by me. And then I think you took over the DevOps uh, as a government chair, the DevOps working group. Yeah, because uh, our, our good friend, uh, Daryl, left the government. That's right. Yeah, Daryl had left uh, DHS. And uh, and I think that's how you and I met um, through the DevOps working group. And uh, yeah, um, I think uh, by that time, uh, the, the working group had sort of matured. Uh, the use cases weren't coming as much. So my uh, involvement sort of reduced uh, and then I sort of pivoted a little bit and being a hands-on automation tester or in, uh, writing code, uh, I become a coach and agile coaching was a big deal. And I was like, let's try this. Let's see how this works out. Uh, and when I got into this agency, uh, 
they learned that I was very technical and they changed my title internally from an agile coach to an enterprise DevSecOps coach. So all of a sudden now I'm coming up with all these solutions for different teams within the agency and sort of creating roadmaps and guiding them on what their journey should look like. And then I would hand off these roadmaps and journey maps to the other coaches and just work with them in helping the teams <clears throat> on their journey and on their pro progress going from the old waterfall-based delivery approach to more DevSecOpsy delivery approach. And to the fast forward... That, to the extent that government can, can make that work within their bureaucracy. Correct, correct. Yes, exactly. Uh, yeah, within all the confines, yes. Yes. Uh, and then fast forwarding it to uh, 2022, I was working for another company that got acquired. And um, at that point, and I just told myself, okay, I've had enough working for other firms. Um, they're getting acquired. I didn't want to go and work for a large uh, system integrator again. So I resigned. I left the company and um, I eventually got some things going under Elasticity. So here we are in 2023. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so uh, right now, small business, uh, looking to scale and expand. Um, the, the focus of work is everything that I've done in the past from automation testing to helping uh, some of the agencies and the organizations uh, adopt agility um, helping them with DevOps transitions. Um, a lot of uh, work goes towards um, creating policies and documents for the agencies to understand yeah. how to embrace DevOps and DevSecOps. Wow. I am very excited for you as well. I mean, we've known <laughs> each other during that journey for you. And, yeah. uh, and when we ran into each other at an event just recently and you and you mentioned you had, you had finally done it. Yeah. I'm very excited. It's always great to to see uh, when that happens, right? Uh, when yeah. somebody finally takes a step out on their own, and it's it's not uncommon in DC, um, right? But uh, it's always exciting because uh, I like you. I liked working for smaller integrators when I was mm -hmm. out in government. I worked. For, I I loved working for small. I mean, 15, 20 people right. companies where you do you get to do everything, right? You get sure. to do a little bit of it all, right? Right. Yeah. So that's 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 amazing. So. <clears throat> you've had an interesting career journey. And as you've gone through that journey, um, I'm sure you've seen uh, lots of interesting ways that we do things. And mm -hmm. I'm curious to know if there's something that you've seen that you wish we could change. It's 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 done in one way, but you know, it could be better, it could be done better, or or or, or we're not doing it at all. And, and yeah, we should consider doing. Mm -hmm. uh, and so if we came to you, Nick, and said, Hey, hey, you have the power. To, to make this change, or even even uh, if the change is too big, you have the power to make us consider this change. What, what might that change be for you? There are a few things I've, I've noticed, Jeremy. It's um, First thing I'll start off with some of the requirements in the RFP, and these are more so in terms of personnel requirements. Mm. Uh, I mean, I understand the, the classification levels and all of that. So I'm not talking about those requirements, but there are requirements such as the individual must have PMP. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I just don't understand that requirement. You could um, have a whole conversation just on that requirement. Okay. Uh, 
Sure. Uh, somebody could be coming in from an angle that um, it could be perceived that if an individual has a PMP, at least they have some baseline knowledge of how to be a, a project manager or a program manager. Mm -hmm. But it doesn't guarantee that individual is. But the evaluation works that way, that when a resume is submitted, that shows 20 years of experience with a PMP acquired back in 2005 or 2015. And the perception is, okay, this individual has seven years of PMP or 20 years of PMP certification, must be good. Not right. true in my experience. Right. They did, they got it in 2005 and then they never used it. <laughs> Correct. Right. Uh, and, and I'm not picking on PMP per se. Um, no, no. You're, you're meaning just those kind of abnormal requirements that are kind of check the box requirements. Exactly. Exactly. There, there are other requirements. Uh, and one of the contracts when I joined, there was a requirement that every automation engineer must have 15 years of experience. Huh. But it wasn't clarified 15 years of what experience. <laughs> um, and then when we got on the client side, the client was like, yeah, we need somebody with 15 years of automation testing experience. And this is 2016. And we were like, automation testing was not that big of a deal back in 2001, 2002. Um, sure, the developers always write unit testing and they are going to claim it as an automated test, which in a way it is. Uh, but there are other tiers of tests that need to be run, uh, integration tests, UI level tests, end-to-end -end tests, which could also be automated. And that's what we were focusing on. And we were explaining the customer that 15 years of experience in this tier of automated tests, it's very challenging. Right. It's, we not, need it's almost not possible, right? That, that, that nobody did it and maybe, except for maybe the IBMs of the world or something. Yeah, very, very few companies did it. And so we had to go through hoops to get waivers. Uh, and, and we were able to, thankfully, and then we were able to fill in the positions. And we're like, look, <clears throat> we will train. And yeah, we're a large system integrator and we do have close to 300,000 people. But a lot of them are on H1s and, and out of the 300,000, 100,000 are in India. So we're, we can't just pick up a phone and ask somebody from India to come here and work for your agency, especially <laughs> with the classification requirements. Right. So we have to work through this. And thankfully the, the agency eventually understood and, and they worked with us. But from my point of view, we lost critical six to nine months time mm -hmm. and we could have accomplished a lot more. So these are the type of requirements that just make me laugh. And I've been reading those type of requirements since 2003, 2004, ever since I got in GovCon. So we're almost, for, at least for me, almost 20 years in the GovCon arena. And I, till date, I see those type of requirements. Uh, and at the same time, especially these days we read crazy things on on media wherein the 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 facebooks and the amazons are getting rid of some of these requirements like you must have degree and you must have x number of years and so on and so forth uh, although given the current climate economical climate things may revert who knows yeah uh, to be seen but 
there are a lot of smart people out there who may not have a college degree, but they could be wicked developers, wicked smart developers or automation testers, um, UI, UX designers. Mm -hmm. um, I, so my point is from the personnel requirement standpoint of view, if that one thing, if not completely removed, but take a notch down, like don't ask or have stringent requirements, like master's degree and 10 years of experience or bachelor's degree and 15 years of experience. Like, makes no sense to me. <laughs> somebody with a 10 year experience could be just as smart as somebody with 15 years of experience. You right. just don't know that. So, right. so yeah, those type of requirements. Yeah, yeah. Some it's come up with a methodology that allows either flexibility, right? Certainly, I'm speaking as a government person, don't define sure. it in the contract. Right. Because then right. once you put in the contract, the hoops you got to go through to fix it. Right. But certainly add some flexibility, add a lot more maybes or, or, or vague statements. And then you can negotiate that more right, yeah. talk about the work, right? Here's what Definitely. we're really trying to, because you, you're right, in the proposal phase, there's not a lot of honest dialogue. There's no dialogue, right? Yeah. It's a, answer these, answer this uh, thing we asked you to submit, and you submit it, and that's it, right? You either win, you lose, right. but after you win, then you begin a relationship. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, so that's there. Another thing, and, and this is not something you, you probably have heard this hundreds of times if you go to any of the industry days in terms of, okay, we, we are proposing key personnel by the time you award it and the contract comes out of protest. If that key person is still with the company, that key person will be more than happy to join the contract. But we're all individuals. We have lives. A lot of people move out of DC area. Uh, if it was someone like me who switched careers a couple of times, <laughs> they're no longer available as key personnel. So have that level of flexibility in, in the contracts if possible. I mean, yeah. I'm sure if, if anybody who's in, uh, on, on the, the law side right now is probably cringing or probably screaming well, like, there are ways to write it right there are ways <laughs> to say that this position is key personnel but it's not right. necessarily an evaluation criteria for the award right it's right determined right. afterwards do like a resume review afterwards not correct not as part of the contract award cycle correct yeah absolutely definitely don't make it as part of your evaluation because it, it just hurts the government at the end of the day well, I th and I, th I hopefully government's getting smarter because of the protest periods and all those things. You're right. Ha lay. I mean, we have to plan our programs so far in advance to and account for potentially that time. Right. Of course, we do as much risk mitigation as we can, right, to ensure we we don't get a protest by being extremely transparent. Right. Uh, but uh, but you just never know what's going to happen. And and as yeah, you said, yeah. even through the course of how long it takes to get a procurement done, somebody could have left the company. Yeah, exactly, exactly. And and so, you know, I'll make it top three three things, uh, room for improvement sort of. So the last one would be, uh, and because my background is in software, uh, it always has been, um, like, please move to the cloud. <laughs> <laughs> if, if your data, if your application does not require any kind of high-level classifications uh just move to the cloud i'm uh, sure you you may feel like you're spending a little bit more but there are a lot of smart engineers who could refactor yeah uh, 
of old monolithic application within weeks, you know, if not days. I mean, I'm very bullish when it comes to cloud technology and you know, don't spend time or like talk internally in terms of how much is this going to cost us? Uh, we don't want to lose our shirt or run out of budget by putting this in cloud. I mean, I'm sure this is 2023. We can come up with contracts that states, okay, we have a mission critical or let's say it's not critical, but it supports the mission, sure. the application. And um, we just want to modernize it. Just move it to the cloud and refactor it. Um, unless it's a gargantuan application. And most of the times it's a bunch of applications together creates a gargantuan application. Yeah. Just break them down, move them into the cloud and you will be prepared for the future versus waiting and sunsetting and and killing that mission and then coming up with a new mission or morphing your existing mission into something different just so that you can move to the cloud, right? I'm sure there are a lot of ways to do it uh, by A, move your data, move your custom softwares, in my opinion, are the easiest to move. Uh, COTS products generally are tricky uh, the way I see it. Uh, I'm sure somebody who's COTS friendly, they may or they can argue with me and <laughs> we can both have a stalemate. I'm perfectly fine with that. <laughs> but the way I see it is that government overall is not any particular agency. I think it is high time that government takes full advantage of cloud technologies. So I'll, I'll stop it at that. The right. top three rooms for improvement. <laughs> yeah, those are great. Those are all great. And they all have opportunity to make government better, which is you know something to consider. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the way I see it, Jeremy, is the end customer are the citizens or the, the people living within the United States. And they're the ones who need help. Um, I'll, I'll just come up with an example. I was just uh, filling in an application from an agency that supports small businesses. And uh, my God, that application response time was so slow. And I could sort of reverse engineer just by looking at the URL, I can tell what's run happening behind the scenes and why the response times are so slow. Uh, but I, I was definitely getting frustrated. I'm like, I need this certification so it will help my business right. um, get those uh, disadvantaged certification, um, so to speak. But just that application process was so slow. And don't get me wrong, it was just that one. It, it baffled me that it's 2023 and it's running so slow. But at the same time, there is another application. I put in an application to get uh, my um, uh, my trusted traveler uh, number so that I don't have to wait in immigration lines uh, when I go in and out of US. And that application was a breeze. And yeah. great UI, great UX uh, worked really well. I'm like, okay, here's, you, you could see, right? There's like the 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 gap and the different spectrum wherein one agency was able to do it. The other agency is probably struggling. Uh, I don't know for whatever reason um, and could be valid reasons. But again, 
you know, there is room for improvement there. Well, now you know which company to bid on projects for. Work <laughs> <laughs> needs your expertise. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. Yeah. So you you started Elasticity uh, last year, correct? So it's been it's been uh, a, 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 almost a year. What's yeah. coming up for you in the future? Is it for for you personally or for the company? Yeah. So, uh, so just just to clarify, uh, the company was registered in 2018, well, right. uh, but it got into action last year in 2022. Um, so, uh, as of right now, uh, as as a company, there are two focuses. One is the growth, and that is tied up with any large prime contractors or government agencies that need assistance in either digital transformation, need help around agility, DevSecOps, um, understanding how the, the CX ties with all the underlying applications that we engineers or developers work on and so on and so forth. So anything related to IT, as long as it's custom software development, as long as it's building DevSecOps platforms internally, um, doing site reliability engineering. Um, we're looking forward to scaling and working with potential partners in that area. Fantastic. Well, yeah. Nick, I want to thank you so much for coming on the podcast. It's uh, I'm very excited for you and, and what the future holds and I can't wait to see you know, what's next for you. Yeah. Thanks a lot, Jeremy. Really appreciate you taking time and giving me this opportunity.